It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. Who wants to talk sports on a Monday afternoon? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. From our Dixon Line Lumber and Home Center studios in San Diego, this is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host John Riley. It's 101 degrees outside. It's going to get pretty hot here inside. We welcome you to our Monday bonus podcast. And John, we got a ton of topics on the table. We're going to go shoot in a lot of different directions. I know you rolled in here and you said, my my head's going to explode with all the news coming out about the Pac-12. So I know we're going to get into that. But yeah, there's a lot on the table. Our broadcast, our Monday bonus podcast brought to you by Dixie Line Lumber and Home Centers. Fix it, build it, and enjoy it. Topic one, John. Okay, well, let's let's start with our hometown Padres because uh, I know they're playing right now. The game's live and it's not looking good for, for San Diego. John, so that's what a first place team looks like. Yeah. Dodgers winning three of four against the Padres at Petco Park. Dodgers continuing to use their big bats, big innings, and just blasting the brown and gold. The Dodgers leaving Petco Park at the end of this Monday game, having won eight of ten against San Diego this season, having won 15 of the 18 series they played against the Padres dating back to 2020 with a record of 40 and 18 against the Friars in games dating back to 2020. They're beating their brains out on the field. And you raise the intriguing point are the Dodgers inside the Padres head. What an awful great sports weekend this turned out to be. And the other thing, there was a lot of blue at Petco Park. And Mookie Betts, when they hit that Grand Slam home run that triggered that eight-run rally, just like when they had the five-run rally on Friday night, sounded like a Dodger home game. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's just like so many Dodger fans. I think the Padre fans sold their season tickets off. You know, so whenever the Padres lose, there's a huge cheer. It's crazy. So, I mean, the Dodgers dominate, and the Dodgers are doing it the way the Dodgers have done it. They're running away from everybody in the National League West. And if that wasn't bad enough, now the president of the Padres, Eric Gruppner, sends out this letter to season ticket holders on Sunday, informing them, informing you, informing us. Ticket prices are going up for a third straight year. They raised them 18%, then they raised them 20%. And the term was used in this letter this weekend was a moderate price hike. So 10 to 15 percent more. That's three straight years. And they're trying to rationalize the way they're doing their business because they're spending all this money to sign all these players and have this payroll. But they're billing the fans at the same time. Credit card bill always comes due coming to the Padre fans as much as it is to Peter Seidler's bank account. Reaction? How many... uh uh, sellouts have there been? I mean, the demand is insatiable. It's been phenomenal. Now, if this thing does not get to postseason, if there's no playoff game in October, do you think everybody's going to be enthused about buying back in next year like they bought in this past year? Yeah, I think we're going to find that out. So it's a big, big issue. That's what a first-place team looks like. Padres have not gotten there and sure don't look like they're getting there. Now, 
we got a ton of topics on the table as it relates to the Padres. John, let's start with Joe Musgrove. This is really concerning. I mean, he has been a workhorse of this rotation since the minute he got here from the Pirates. And I always maintain your pitchers are never the same from one year to the next just because the wear and tear factor. And shoulder capsule injuries are significant. And, I mean, he's in shutdown mode for three full weeks with inflammation in the shoulder capsule. It's just, it's a compilation of all the starts, and he takes the ball every fifth day. All the innings he piles up, and he's a max effort guy. These things happen. The problem is it's happened at the wrong time of the calendar because three weeks pushes us to September, and three weeks is not him throwing a get ready. Three weeks shutdown mode. Mm-hmm. If they give him a cortisone injection, obviously he will stop throwing completely. And then there'll need to be another two weeks ramp up. So he might not be back till mid-September if there's no setback. And who knows where the Padres are going to be in the race at that point. So Musgrove shut down with inflammation, shoulder capsule. We say goodbye to a really good guy, Craig Stammen. What a workhorse he was, regardless of whatever the role was with the Padres prior to that, Washington Nationals. He had a really good run. A uh, decade plus out of the bullpen, came up with the old Washington Nationals. He was one of the last of the original national pitchers that got to D.C. when the Montreal Expos became uh, the Washington Nats. Uh, retires with a 56-44 and 44 record, 3.660 RA for a guy who took the ball every time the phone rang in the bullpen and wanted to pitch. Mm-hmm. Really nice gentleman. Uh, tough finish to Cole Hamels. But you talk about Warrior, what a great pitcher he was. Phillies, Texas, Cubs. So he goes through this long, lonely road. You think walking down your driveway is hard? <laughs> he did that rehab every day. Long, lonely road. Major surgery shoulder year and a half ago. Set back a year ago as he sat out the season. Goes through another nine months of rehab. And the pain returns in the shoulder again. So he retires. He never, ever got to El Paso to pitch in a Pacific Coast League game, which was supposed to be the jumping off point. And this was after he'd come through the spring and was okay with no setbacks and obviously another setback. Cole Hamels retires a career record of 163 and 122, 3.44 ERA, 17-year career. That was a hell of a career. Uh, Padres Fernando Tatis. Not the same player right now. I don't think he's hurt, but I do think he's worn out. He had the stretch of 13 games in a row. He was hitting 109. El Nino, 109. Hmm. Still making plays, playing hard in right field, still making throws, but obviously swinging at all kinds of stuff, chunk of it out of the strike zone, etc. He just looks really, really fatigued. To quote Kevin Costner, in the movie Bull Durham, what we need is a rainout. Yeah, uh, they they really. I don't know how they rest and sit Tatis, but he needs to have a couple days off. Big setback as the Padres played the roster thing around the trade deadline. He had to move guys off the forty man roster to make way for Rich Hill and He Man Choi and the guys that came in the, in the transactions. They gambled. They tried to take Brent Honeywell, who they kind of really refined and held back from all the, the elbow problems he had and shoulder problems in Tampa Bay. And they, they tried to sneak him through waivers when they designated him for reassignment so they could send him back to El Paso and at least retain the rights. And if they needed him in September, if there were injuries, they could call him up and then 
try to get him back on the 40-man roster. They lost him. I thought somebody would take a flyer on him. He's gone to the White Sox. So a lot of negative news about the Padres as they lost to, that's what a first-place team looks like. (laughs) Uh, Dodgers, Clayton Kershaw, two strong bullpens, will be given the ball back into the rotation, might be on a pitch count or an innings count, back in the Dodger rotation Thursday against Colorado. And this story is really a bit of a surprise. Walker Bueller, who has come back now from his second elbow surgery in his career, a month and a half ahead of schedule, all the throwing regimens. He didn't have his velocity when he first started. He's gotten better and stronger as he's gone. He's going to start rehab middle of this week, I think maybe in Oklahoma City. Now, they'll handle that with kid gloves. He'll throw maybe an inning or two first rehab start. If there's no setback, the second rehab start at AAA might be two to four innings, and then they'll make the judgment. Looks like he's going to be back to pitch in the month of September, which means he's going to be back, and if there's no problems, when the playoffs start in October. And those are the first-place Dodgers welcoming back now Kershaw and hopefully believing because they have handled Bueller with kid gloves through this entire rehab process. And the Dodgers are pretty good about doing rehabs from surgeries. Dodgers all of a sudden might get this pitching staff straightened out. When we go to the most important time of the year, when the first-place Dodgers uh, go to postseason play. Okay, so... I sprayed a lot of hits in your direction. Go ahead, pick a topic, talk about Padre or Dodger baseball. Well, I, I, first of all, I, I feel bad for Honeywell. I was like really rooting for that kid because he had gone through so much adversity and, you know, he throws a screwball and he was such a competitor up he there. He throws heat. Yeah, he was, he, and he's a talent. He just needed some more work. But, geez, that, that big board of yours, I got all those pitching injuries. Now, what, do you buy off on the theory that we treat pitchers too gingerly with pitch count limits where, you know, Back in the day, they only had a four-man rotation, and they went 180 pitches. Nolan Ryan, you know, all those old-timers. What do you think? Is it uh, the way they're handling pitchers different now, and that's why we get all the injuries? I think you cut class when they taught sports medicine at UCSD to go uptown to drink beer. Just admit that right now. Okay. Uh, the big the big deal is, and everybody pinpoints Atlanta and says, Clavin, Smoltz, Maddox. How is that humanly possible? Well, those guys were not power pitchers per se. They didn't throw five different things that put enormous stress, shoulder and elbow. But that was an aberration. But the violence in the arm action, the strength in which these guys make their pitches, puts unbelievable stress on ligaments. And that's why there are so many Tommy John surgeries now, as guys have gotten bigger and stronger and more physical. Everything changes about their body makeup except the strength of the ligaments in the elbow or what's going on in the rotator cuff. Prime example, former Padre high draft pick pitcher Corey Lubke, left-hander, pitched really well when he first got here. And he was a workout freak. And I remember him in the middle of the clubhouse who we were just talking about how he had evolved. And Corey said, I never thought I'd throw 97. Well, that's the end result of weight training. His core got stronger. His legs got stronger. Upper body got stronger. The only thing to get stronger, the elbow ligaments. Mm. And he tore him three times, and that was the end of his career. And I don't even think he was 27, and he was done. He got one payday in his baseball career. But that's a prime example of how forceful the stress on pitchers' arms are. So when you talk about if you Google the careers of those three Atlanta Braves pitchers, and you say, 
how the hell did they do that? All those starts, all those innings. And those three guys, there's only one surgery. And that was John Smoltz's elbow, finally. And wow. then, he, then he reinvented himself as a relief ace. But that was, that was a unique situation to three guys that weren't throwing the kind of stuff that jumps across the plate into the next area code and the umpires have trouble calling balls and strikes because there's so much ball movement. Those guys were unique to themselves, but that's the explanation to the injury factor and why it's so bad everywhere. You go through every major league roster, John, every pitching staff, I can pinpoint some unique guy who's had major surgery and has come back. But coming back means sitting on the sidelines for 14 to 18 months with the hope you're going to be what you were before you blew it out. So that's a long answer to the pitching questions, but that's why that's why all that stuff is going on. Does it make sense? It does make sense. And I know nowadays, you know, they got the pitch, you know, the, the jugs gun is on every pitch and we see it on the screen. But back in the day, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you'd only hear about the jugs gun every once in a while. And if you look at the old time footage of the black and white games, it looked like soft toss. For, you know, it makes you wonder if it was like in slow motion you know, the way they threw then. So I think back in the day, I mean, if you were throwing in the mid to high 80s, that was probably up there. Now, because of weight training, and these guys train 11 months of the year, John. Mm -hmm. It's an 11 month a year job to be a major league pitcher in terms of your preparation and your physique and what you do, et cetera. Damn, don't you miss the days of Hoyt Wilhelm's knuckleball? (laughs) Wilbur Wood. Exactly. (laughs) Now, like I said, you should have never cut class at UCSD to go drink beer the day they taught sports medicine. Yeah, I I missed that class. Okay, on we go from that. Let's go from baseball. Let's go to what a weekend in college football. I mean, you sure you want to touch this because it's changing by the hour. Oh, the death of the Pac-12 conference, the conference of champions is gone. Uh, I call it Black Friday. I mean, it it was a terrible story, the way this whole thing evolved. There are only four teams left in the, quote, conference of champions, and no one at this point knows what's going to develop, what's going to happen. Let me walk you through the timeline I tried to put together, uh, because this was really hard. The Pac-12 thought that they had everybody lined up with a TV deal with Apple TV. Pac-12 people, I think it was the presidents and the ADs, met on Wednesday. And the commissioner, George Klievkoff, said, we have a deal. We will present it Friday morning, review it right then, and vote on it right then and there. And that also included the deed of rights in which the school turns its marketing contract over to the conference. Conference goes to the bidder and says, all 12 teams or 10 teams, because there is no USC, UCLA any longer. These 10 schools are committed to this contract. Let's sign the deal and go. They showed up at 7 a.m. Friday morning, and Klivikov unveiled a deal that was structured differently than the deal he talked about on Wednesday. Oh, On Wednesday, he had talked Apple TV streaming subscription will be the primary team. We would then have linear TV after that. Now, he didn't detail who it was, but the rumors, and we had talked about it, the rumors had leaked out that Disney and ESPN might have been back in the hunt, and they talked to NBC, and they talked to the new CW network, which is diving into sports. They talked to TBS and TNT. They kind of got there real late, and they talked to Ion TV. None of those rights holders were part of the deal that was presented at 7 a.m. And the presidents of the 
Pac-12 schools, or the 10 schools who would have voted on it, looked up from the table and said, this is not the deal we were talking about on Friday. And what happened between Wednesday and 7 a.m. Friday was that all the TV rights holders, those subsidiary networks, said, no, we're not paying you a chunk of money if you're giving all the marquee games to Apple TV. Ah, That included, obviously, the, the, the prime afternoon game on Saturday, a Saturday night game, and there was a creative aspect of this, that Friday night football. And if you're giving Apple TV all that, the other rights holders who might be partners, the linear TV networks, said, no, we're not taking these second and third year games for a big chunk of money. So all of a sudden, the Pac-12 presidents are sitting there and saying, this is not the deal. So then the Pac-12 presidents, first of all, said, no, we're not giving you the rights of deed. No, we're not accepting the Apple deal. And within an hour, Oregon announced, we're going to the Big Ten. An hour later, Washington's president said, none of this is viable. We're going to the Big Ten. Wow. And within three hours, by late afternoon Friday, and this is why I had a headache, <laughs> Arizona, Arizona State, Utah defected. And Utah and Arizona State were components that said, we must stay together, keep this West Coast Conference intact. They gave up, and they wound up going. So by the time we got to Friday night, we were down to the Pac-4. And Oregon State was shocked, and Washington State was shocked, and Cal and Stanford were really upset because they, they had lost all their key components. Apple had proposed, you're one, out of the gate, $20 million hmm. per school, $20 million. That's a cut from what the Pac-12 network was given the league, $20 million. Year two, they came back and said, we project year two, we can Bump this up to $31 million. Oh, but by the way, that's based on the fact we'd have 1.7 million subscribers by that point in time. Hmm. Somebody from Washington and Oregon stood up and said, wait a minute. You think you're going to get $1.7 million in year two so we get a pay hike? You got Lionel Messi. You have the MLS package. You've sold only 800,000 subscriptions with all the excitement for Lionel Messi. What makes you think... You can get to 1.7. Third year of the proposal was they could take this thing to 50 million. This is what Apple said to the Pac-12. Take it to 50. But that's based on the fact we'd have 5 million subscribers by the third year. Wow. And at that point in time, everybody in the conference said, that's ridiculous. You're tying our health, our financial well-being to the ability to sell subscriptions at this crazy number. Nobody's mm-hmm. 5 million subscribers to Pac-12. It doesn't work at all. So the whole the whole financial deal just absolutely disintegrated. And as all that was going on, Oregon left, Washington left. The Big Ten gave them a $30 million first-year fee with a promise the second and third and fourth years would probably reach to the $50 million everybody else in the Big Ten is getting. And then the Big 12 came back to the corner schools, and they told Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, you come in the front door, you'll get the full share just like we gave Colorado last week. Hmm. So they get $37 million walking in the front door of the Big 12. So that's, that's why this thing fell apart so badly. What was talked about Wednesday 
was not in the package on Friday, and there was no linear TV as part of the deal. Really ugly. I, I, I just think it's catastrophic. And then today, there was another meeting of the PAC-4, and they indicated at noon on Monday, we're not merging with anybody. We might add, but we're not merging with anybody, which means the Beavers and the Cougars, the Golden Bears and the Cardinal, are not coming across the street to join the Mountain West Conference. Now, where they're going to go to cherry pick, that's a big issue there because there's hardly anybody out there outside of the Mountain West schools. So, John, that's the timeline. Know you Now you know why I had to take two Tylenols <laughs> on Friday because the story kept changing. And yeah. then my network of people were able to provide me with some background. And this is, like I said, always promised Wednesday, surely did not show up on Friday. And that's why we are where we are right now during our Monday bonus podcast. Well, it's interesting how... Apple TV wanted the marquee and the linear TV got the leftovers. Usually it's the other way around, you know, where the streamers get the leftovers and uh, linear TV gets the marquee. So it's a further example of the world shifting. But uh, you, when you when the way you broke that down, Hacks, like you can't blame Oregon and Washington and the corner schools. It's a no-brainer to leave. And, you know, granted, I get the whole concept of, hey, we sell more subscriptions. We can offer you more money with Apple TV. But these other guys are getting a guarantee that's more money than they're getting now. So a no-brainer. But it, it doesn't surprise me that Cal and Stanford specifically are trying to remain kind of at that elite level because they think of themselves highly as they should academically. Would they merge? I don't know. I mean, it's changing by the hour. But it makes sense to see some of the, the better Mountain West teams come together and retain that pack eight pack 12 name and the and the uh, the the power five conference and that actually might turn out to be a good deal for san diego in the end we'll have to see but that's where oh and there was an addendum on friday morning in addition to all the stuff that was missing in the proposal there was a clause at the bottom of the apple proposal that was given to the presidents on friday asking or demanding or telling each of the schools you're going to pick up the production cost for oh, Pac-12 wow. football and basketball. So in essence, Apple wanted a sweetheart, low-budget deal mm-hmm. with maybe some promises of big money down road. And by the way, you pay for the cost so we can have the sweetheart deal on our streaming service. And that just it just brought the house down. Guys got up from the table, walked away. And yeah. Within an hour, the Ducks were gone. And within two hours, the Huskies were gone. And by late afternoon, no Sun Devils and no Wildcats and no Utes either. End of an era. Oh, my God. Just terrible. Okay. From that, we go on to the next question, because as one domino falls, Black Friday, Pac-12, it impacts the next domino. So what's going on here with the Mountain West? I mean, that's the next one in line. What is the future? At this point in time, with the pronouncement that was made at noon on Monday, we're not merging with anybody. That's what the Pac-4 had to say. I don't know what the Mountain West's response is. The reason is the Mountain West was adamant. They sent out a reminder on the weekend to all the Mountain West schools, from the Aztecs to San Jose State, from Wyoming to Colorado State, you are bound to this conference through 2025. If anybody thinks they're going to leave to go to the Pac-4, that will cost you $34 million exit fee. You agreed to the structure of the exit fee. 
So in the goodness of their heart, Mountain West is not going to let anybody leave to go to the Pac-4. And you got those guys on the other street corner saying, we're not merging with you. We're going to add and we'll cherry pick who we want. I mean, if I were king, if I were the Pac-4, I would I would come after San Diego State. I would come after Boise State. I would maybe look at Fresno State. I would make a run into Texas and probably take SMU. But that's not a sexy conference. That's kind of like the Mountain West, is it not? Yeah. Yeah, so there. Now, where's the Mountain West? You know, if they can't add Oregon State, Washington State, which to me would be huge. But those guys say, well, we're not stepping down. And that would be a step down financially. Oh, yeah. Hell, yes. They go from $25 million TV package to $4 million a year. That's the Mountain West fee. That's a big step down. And merge? Well, if they're going to merge, who's going to call the shots? Pac-12 says, no, we're, we're going to run our conference. Now, if you want to come, that's the end of the home office in Colorado Springs and all that. And everybody joins the Pac-12. But I don't think that's sexy, having San Jose State and all these guys in in the Pac-4 if it tries to expand. The exit fee thing is there. What they do, maybe, is they just stand pat and just see, because everybody's got a year to go on their contract. Let's just see what happens in the in the 23-24 athletic season. But this is devastating to football in the Pac-12. It's equally devastating to a, a pretty good college basketball conference. Now, granted, McCronin's taking UCLA to the Big Ten, but there's still good basketball uh, in, in, in the Pac-4, Pac-12, whatever is it's going to be. So that's where we are. I think the Mountain West takes a deep breath, needs to step back. Let's just see as the dust settles over the next calendar year what happens. But Mountain West is not really a power broker in this. But the flip side is Pac-4. Who are you going to go get? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, if, if the Mountain West just sort of tries to wait it out, the Pac-4 waits it out. I mean, we're seeing that people are jumping in and making moves, and you could be left on a street corner with nothing. So I saw one of the proposals was that the Mountain West uh, presidents could get together, and I think it takes, what, nine of the tw- three quarters of them to vote to maybe dissolve the conference, thus making them free agents. And then the Pac-4 could cherry pick the ones they want, and then they could essentially kind of walk away from the weaker schools like, you know, San Jose State and some of the others. That's an interesting idea to me. But and then you if you retain it under the Pac-5 umbrella, then it really works. But I just can't see someone like Stanford agreeing to that. I think Stanford is more likely to go the independent route, if anything, like Notre Dame. Stanford Cal could go independent. Where's your TV money coming from? Mm-hmm. You know, Notre Dame's TV contract is, I want to say, $25 million, and their marketing deal is $75 million. Stanford Cardinal been down face first. Cal has not been winning. Cal's basketball is 3-29. and 29. Where are they going to get a mega TV contract if they want to be independent? That independence mm-hmm. is not like Notre Dame being an independent. Trust me there. Well, so. it is. But I think Stanford is kind of at a different level than Cal because their sports programs are really good. I mean, they have a huge athletic department, and they've got a lot of private money flowing into that school. They might be able to figure out a way, but... Man, this whole thing is a friggin' disaster. It's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Hey, our Monday bonus podcast is brought to you by Dixie Line Lumber and Home Centers. Fix it, build it, and enjoy it. So we've talked college football. John, let's 
go to the NFL because what's just around the corner? Preseason games. Yeah, NFL is getting started here, so I'm looking forward to getting involved here. We got a lot of storylines here. NFL preseason schedule kicks in on Thursday night. Uh, Bryce Young, Carolina is going to make his debut for the Panthers. He will be the starting quarterback for the Carolina Panthers in their first preseason game. He's really had a rocky week. He was very frustrated to the point he stormed off the field. Bryce Young went 7 for 15 in a weekend scrimmage. Twice he had the ball inside the 10-yard line in a red zone package, did not get the football into the end zone, and he was really just upset with how poorly he has played in chunks of time. So you got that. Uh, Jordan Love, Green Bay. Bad morning practice to begin with. Got a little bit better late in the morning practice. They've been they've given him the keys to the car with the Packers, and it's up to him to make this thing work. The one thing is he doesn't have the plethora of wide receivers and proven tight ends because a bunch of those guys have left. One went to the Jets with Aaron Rodgers. Another just signed with the Bears. So he's got kids all around him trying to catch the balls that he's thrown. Uh, he had two interceptions and a fumble in the 11-on-11 drills on the weekend. Took a deep breath. They put him back out there later in the seven-on-sevens, and he completed passes of 20, 21, and 30 yards, including a touchdown. So who knows when it's live fire and it's a real deal how Jordan Love is going to do. Uh, The Raiders situation, Jimmy Garoppolo. You know, last week, Josh McDaniels praised Garoppolo by saying he, he hit the floor running here. Because a lot of the stuff we did when I was in New England and he was in New England, he knows. Saturday, Sunday practices, and I've never heard of this before. Jimmy G combined seven interceptions. Seven? In, in two practices. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's not good. No. Um, the other thing, and I, and I don't know what's going to come of this because Josh Jacobs, the lead running back, is not there. He's embroiled, continued in this franchise tag holdout. There is a storyline of the Raiders are so upset, they just might remove the franchise tag and let him be a free agent on the street because he refused to sign the one-year $10 million franchise tag. Mm-hmm. He turned down $13 million a year, and that money's gone. He can't, he can't come back and re-sign for the 13 offer. He missed the deadline. So either he plays under the franchise tag or maybe... They move the tag. He becomes a street-free agent. Problem is, nobody's got any cap space now. So who's going to sign Josh Jacobs to any type of -of state-of-the-art money? There is a theory out there that if they take the tag off, and I've seen guys have the tag removed, but usually it's then they come come and play, and during the season they get a new contract extension, that maybe they take trade offers. I I hear Denver might be interested in Josh Jacobs because Denver's got cap space, but... Geez, the Raiders trade with the enemy in their own division. It doesn't make any sense to me. But that's the latest, that they're really steamed at Jacobs, and Jacobs has dug his heels in. Rams situation, opened the preseason against the Chargers uh, on Saturday night. Rams roster, you know Matthew Stafford. Mm-hmm. You know Cooper Cup, though he's hurt. And you know Aaron Donald. You don't know anybody else. They have 40 rookies of the 90 guys who are going to play Saturday against the Chargers. 40. Wow. Can you say the word rebuild? Yeah, really. <laughs> Can you say 4-13, and 13, this might be painful? Yeah. Wow. So that's that's the latest there. And Cooper Cup, 
He's got a hamstring, and they're trying to downplay it, but hamstrings don't go away in 15 minutes, so he may not play at all in preseason, and then he'll get to the opening game of the season, and you hope there are no setbacks along the way. But I just I just think the Rams are sitting here on the precipice of something I think could really, really be ugly. Okay, so a lot of topics. Go ahead. Talk about the kid quarterbacks. Talk about seven interceptions in two days. That's who I want to talk about is Jimmy G. Because doesn't it seem interesting that we always said, kind of had low expectations for him. When he came to the 49ers from the Patriots, he was a guy that kind of plugged him in, and he did better than we thought. And then he was steady Eddie managing the team. And every once in a while, he'd make a dynamic play, and we're like, hey, Jimmy G. you know, And it kind of got this bandwagon thing going. But you were always... On thin ice, you always knew that something was about to implode. And sure, he got the injuries, but now maybe is he getting exposed by the the Raiders' defense? Is this who he really is? Or Seven maybe he's getting exposed because the Raiders don't have the 49ers' offensive line, ah. and the Raiders traded their star tight end Darren Waller. And the Raiders, do they have a lot of marquee guys at wide receiver? And there's no Josh Jacobs at running back. But in, I mean, in a scrimmage against your subs. And by the way, the Raiders' defense does not in any way equal the monsters of Midway Chicago, etc. Right. But holy cow, I mean, I was stunned because I bought into the theory, well, he knows a chunk of this playbook and the language and all that because it was with Josh McDaniels in New England and the kid played pretty well. But maybe it was just a bad day at the office. It better have been a bad day at the office because if he's not right and not comfortable... And you got to hope he doesn't get hurt because he does have a history of getting decked. Wow, that's that's not a good story. Well, if it's the Raiders, there's going to be drama, right? Oh, you yeah. can count on that. Rams, 40 new newbies. Holy cow. Yeah, that's that's a rebuild for sure. Yeah. Hey, listen, we get to halftime. Our bonus Monday podcast is brought to you by the good people at Dixie Line. Get summer project savings at Dixie Line Lumber and Home Centers. Power tools, paint, doors, windows, decking, outdoor lighting, patio furniture, and a lot more. And check out the great offers and the ad promotions just by going to the website, DixieLine.com. Dixie Line, nine different stores here in San Diego County. Dixie Line, fix it, build it, enjoy it. These are our friends at Dixie Line. And coming out of halftime, John, before we move to other topics on the table on our Monday bonus podcast, remind everybody that's with us on live stream about what we're going to do right at the end, because we're looking for a co-host to join us. We call it the Fans Forum. Explain to them how it works. Yeah, so the, the, I can see the guys already getting queued up here. So, yeah, if you want to get involved in the Fans Forum, drop your you know hot take, your question for Hacksaw in the live chat on Facebook or on YouTube. Who is in the live chat now? We see John and Scott and Manny and Trevin and Emmanuel and Oliver and George are all piling in. So you got some questions or comments for Hacksaw, be sure to drop them in the live chat. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including on YouTube. And by the way, if you like sports, of course you like sports. Want you to tell all your friends about everything we do. The bonus podcast on Monday, the big full podcast on Thursday, and check my website. It's written every day of the week. There's stuff there that you won't find anywhere else. Check the website. You give me five minutes, you know everything in the world of sports. Website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. And we invite you to share with all your friends, your followers, your team, your gang about everything we're doing. You get a chance, give us a thumbs up. 
and we'll take five star in the rating. Please do that too. Okay, John, on we go. Other topics on the table. Hoops. Hoops. I mean, the Lakers just signed their guy to a huge deal. Anthony Davis, look at that dollar figure. All-time record NBA total, $62 million for AD. When he's healthy, he has been a difference maker. He has made them a championship-caliber team. When he's not healthy, they're in trouble as a team. They sign him to a record three years, $186 million extension right now. Don't understand why it had to happen now. Could have happened during the course of this final season of the contract. Why did they do it now? I went back and checked, and I don't read medical reports because the language is kind of <laughs> too too intelligent for me. He's missed 124 games in four years in L.A. Wow, that's a lot. Over the course of his career with the New Orleans Pelicans and the Lakers, he's missed 23% of all games played in the NBA. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking shoulder, we're talking Achilles, we're talking multiple foot injuries, calf injury, ankle injury. Huge. So they're locking him down. And so he finishes the last year of this contract. The new one kicks in, worth 62. LeBron James will probably get his extension. He'll be making 45 to $50 million at least per year on a three-year extension if LeBron elects to sign an additional extension. So their their future is set with the two great cornerstone veteran guys, but there's a significant injury issue with LeBron, and there's a greater injury issue with this guy. Yeah, so is this kind of like the Larry Bird rule from way back in the day? Where well, it's you got could... to do with free agency, but this is all part of the collective bargaining agreement. Okay. The volume of money has gone into the NBA coffers. The marquee superstars qualify for super max contracts based on their productivity and what they've earned in the past. Mm. And that's why he got that dollar value of 62 mil. Well, you know, the Lakers are rolling in the dough, too. So isn't it amazing across all these different sports, all these players signing these big deals, yet spending so much time on the injured list? And then it kind of makes you wonder, what's the return on investment for the owner? But these these teams have no trouble selling out their arenas, selling out their stadiums. So the math pencils out for the CFO. And the TV contracts are mega because mm-hmm. it's a stars league, even though some of these guys, like the guys across the hallway with the Clippers in Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, they got a significant amount of injury history. They're dragging onto the court with them, too. So we go from that, let's talk college basketball. This is quite a story. Yeah, and Mick Cronin's up to some uh, interesting recruiting here, right? This guy, great track record at Cincinnati. What a job he's done at UCLA. And now he's taken it in a different direction. He has signed four Euro players in this offseason on campus already. He just signed maybe the best big man in Europe, a seven foot three center from Spain by the name of Ade Mara. Seven three, stroke it, shoot it, rim protector. Really wow. young pup. Mm-hmm. Really good player. And he got him at the end of last week. And over the weekend, he signed the best big man from Turkey. His name is Burke Bayoktunsel, six nine and a half, physical force center. He's also signed a guard from Serbia, another player from Croatia. He's got recruiting contacts in Europe that all of a sudden have started to blossom. The other guy in the conference, although he won't be in a conference after next year, is down in Tucson, the University of Arizona. And what their coaching staff has done with their Hall of Players from 
Lithuania, Serbia. I mean, it's absolutely amazing how UCLA has now been able to corner a piece of the euro market, and Arizona was the first one diving into it. So uh, it's it's phenomenal what Mick Cronin's done, and he's a pushy guy. And they do play really tough defense. He struggled a little bit with NBA defections, but that's become life uh, in in major college basketball. But boy, you go get the two best big men in Europe, and they're going to wear Bruins colors for at least one year, maybe two years. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's a global game, right? Yeah, you know, so you know, people are recruiting all around the world. But I mean, imagine go backwards in time, like fifteen years, when Randy Bennett at St. Mary's was recruiting in Australia, and I thought that was such an innovative approach because he struggled to get the top tier guys in America. There, he could get he had a unique pipeline of international talent, and it transformed that program. Well, UCLA is. You know, I mean, they're already at the top of the mountain. So now they're even better with all this international talent. I I like it. I think, you know, it's just consistent with the global game aspect, making this sport bigger internationally. All good. And what made the school in Spokane great? Gonzaga. They went abroad. They Mm. did it right after Randy Bennett did it at St. Mary's with the Gales. You look at the roster. A lot of their stars are internationals. I mean, what a job Mark Few has done with his pipeline. Oh, yeah. And that's only that's a basketball-only school. We're not talking about, hey, <laughs> we play big-time college football. You know about us. This is Gonzaga. Uh, great, great job, obviously, by, by Mick Cronin. Take it next level. From hoops, let's talk puck. Talking puck. I mean, Hacksaw, you bring the goods when we talk hockey. We knew this deal was being discussed, had been discussed for months. They finally executed it. It wasn't easy. We're talking about San Jose's trade of their superstar defenseman, Eric Carlson. Sharks now have gotten rid of all their marquee players over the last couple of calendar years. Eric Carlson, massive defenseman, making $11.5 million per year. He goes to the Pittsburgh Penguins in a three-team trade on Sunday. I mean, this is a great hockey player, a great offensive hockey player. And he had served the Sharks loyally. He wanted out. He wanted the chance to go play for a Stanley Cup team. So he goes to Pittsburgh, where he will be teammates with Sidney Crosby and with Eugenie Malkin. Uh, Pittsburgh's got no money for anybody else, but they will have three legendary players. But at the end of the day, the trade was really complicated because there's salary cap things that have to take place. Uh, Carlson, young uh, winger Rem Pitlock from Montreal, another minor leaguer, a third-round pick. And six million cash all go to the Penguins. Mm. San Jose's pan six million of the f- final four years of Carlson's contract. San Jose gets uh, Mikhail Grenlin, young forward Jan Ruta, a young Euro veteran center Mike Hoffman. They get a number one pick as part of this transaction, and they get massive cap space that they can probably use next summer. They won't be really good this year, but they're stockpiling a lot of guys. And Montreal kind of made this thing happen because they had budgetary space. Montreal gets a second-round pick. They reacquire veteran defenseman Jeff Petrie with a really big contract. They got Casey DeSmith, might be their goaltender of the future. He comes from the Penguins as part of this triangle deal. Uh, And then they got Nathan Lafarge, a big young forward. So Montreal get some really good young players, and they made the deal work because they took on Jeff Petrie's contract, which allowed other teams to make transactions. I mean, it was it was a significant blockbuster deal. It's going to be interesting. Pittsburgh's got all this talent, and 
underachieved last year, got no cap space now because those three players are making all the money. So it might be 101 degrees in the parking lot outside here at our Dixieline studios, but boy, everybody's who covers hockey sitting there in a rink saying, wow, that's a hell of a deal. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about the Sharks being in Silicon Valley. They probably have really good attendance numbers, selling out those suites for all the tech companies. And it's interesting that money went from San Jose to Pittsburgh as part of the deal. I mean, wasn't it some time ago that the Penguins had financial difficulties? No, that goes back a thousand years, though. Okay. They've been pretty good for a long time. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it's just it's just interesting, you know, because everyone's getting in position because the season's going to start here pretty quick. Season is over for the soccer team. Oh, my. Uh, let's talk about Team USA, Women's World Cup. They're on their way home on this Monday as we do this bonus podcast. Yeah, I mean, what a what a huge upset. Well, maybe not an upset. Sweden knocking out Team USA. But, uh, yeah, Megan Rapino and a lot of other players, that was the end of their career. Uh, very tough to swallow. Uh, I can say success because we have seen the next young wave of players show up and show they can handle the pressure, the Sophia Smiths of the world. But you have to use the word disappointment. I mean, this is the number one team in the world. This is the first time they never got to the semifinals or the championship round. They're on their way home. They're not going to win their third World Cup in a row. And it's just a shocker with how poorly they played. And there is criticism everywhere. (laughs) Everybody is dumping on Team USA. Now, I might be in the minority, and that's okay. I'll, I'll be the lone wolf and stand on the street corner. It's not that they were overwhelmed. It may be that they didn't play well in some of the games. They did blow out Vietnam, which was grossly overwhelmed in the first game. But they only scored four goals in four games. That's a big issue. They went 238 minutes in the World Cup, never scored a goal. But I sat there and I looked at it and I said, holy cow, they had so many goal-scoring opportunities. even, Even in the disappointing shootout loss... On, on penalty kicks to Sweden, they had shots. They had shots that hit the crossbar, shots that hit the post, wide open shots. A goaltender made some unbelievable saves. Musevich, the Swedish goaltender who plays in England, she was phenomenal. She made 11 saves. Wow. And a pile of them were point blanks and others were through screens. And next thing you know, she's diving and deflecting the ball off. And she kept the ball out. Uh, Team USA... Three failed penalty kicks, which is kind of a shocker. You mm. think one on one they'd be able to put it in. They had a fourth penalty kick that hit the lower post and bounced out. So I think the future is better. Uh, this is a massive disappointment. Now, there were eight players who were 30 years of age on this roster, and I think most of them are going to leave. I don't know if Alex Morgan's going to come back. But Julie Ertz just announced her retirement. Rapino obviously announced the retirement just before they got started. So that that's a huge question. Awful lot of criticism, though. Was the coaching right? Did Vlatko do the good job? Was the system they were running made for the players that were on the pitch? Should they have done something different? But the fact they fired a lot of shots on goal and had people open just didn't convert – leads me to believe the system was probably okay. There was a lot of criticism Sunday and Monday that the culture of Team USA's women's program has to change. In the developmental era of women's soccer now, it's called pay for play. Mm -hmm. You take your daughter and you get her into these youth programs and they grow as they go. You're paying their way 
The problem is that they're developing individual players to win team trophies, where they should be developing the complete young female player so they can then place them in Europe and get them prepared to play at the global level rather than win a plastic trophy when they're 12 years old in Poway and Rancho Bernardo. Yeah. It's, it, it's a big issue. Uh, they've, they've defended how they've done their business, but I think there'll probably be some reevaluation. Is Vlatko the right coach? Should he be removed? That's a debate because usually if you don't go deep in World Cup, you're unemployed. Now, he's been there for a while. Do they need a change in philosophy, change in culture, change in X and O's? And if they didn't have enough trouble, then you know who dumped all over Team USA today. Trump. Yeah, yeah, that's what I figured. On social media, Trump mocked Team USA and criticized Megan Rapinoe for missing a shot in the World Cup. And, you know, he bottom-lined everything. America, USA is going to hell because the soccer team lost. Take that for what it might be, what it means, means nothing to me except he's a loudmouth. Uh, so I'm on the street corner by myself. I'm, I'm the one standing here with a uh, candy cane striped shirt on the street corner as you drive by. Uh, I think the USA program's okay. I think that we found some the next generation of stars. But boy, if you close your eyes and you think, going back to Mia Hamm and Hope Solo uh, at Carly Floyd, and I mean, we've had so many really good women players at the global level. And now the bulk of them have now reached the pinnacle of the profession. They're going into the twilight. The next wave has to come and come quick. But uh, I thought Team USA go deeper. Sure had a lot of scoring chances. Didn't. So am I on the street corner by myself in my candy cane shirt? Go ahead, John. Yeah, it's, uh, it was disappointing. You know, and I tried to stay up until two in the morning um, Sunday to watch it. But, uh, you know, yeah, they, they had they went to they lost two games in penalty shot kick out uh, PKs. And it was uh, frustrating. But, you know, you're talking about development. We talked earlier about Title IX, how that gave the U.S. like an advantage over other other nations. Now. It looks like maybe they're going to start developing players like they do for the men in Europe, you know, to have that full development. I mean, that's an interesting evolution of the sport. Uh, it'll be interesting because these other global countries have caught up to Team USA. Or was this just a one and done disappointment just because so many of our stars have now reached the upper 30 age limit and have to be replaced? I don't know if everybody else. I mean, Japan just looks like a global power. It's like Japan's come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But if they're funding it and if they're running their developmental programs different than we are running, then we have to do, U.S. Soccer Federation has to take a look at this very, very differently. You know, and is the criticism that you're pay for play when you're developing your high school teenager to be a soccer star? Is it for her to become a complete player or just win trophies when they're playing in these little regional well, tournaments? Well, that's how travel ball is in, in in every sport. You know, it's about winning tournaments, you know, going on the road, winning tournaments, bringing back trophies and a lot of private coaching. But, yeah, it's all pay to play, 100 percent. Baseball, softball, basketball, soccer. All right. Those are hot topics on the table. It's John's turn with John's friends from left field. It's time for Fans Forum. Go ahead, John. Pick some questions. Where do you want to go? Okay. Let's uh, let's start here at the top of the list with um, with Scott. And he says, these super conferences are going to ruin college sports. I think it's a big turnoff. Because to me, the history and legacy of conferences is the fabric of college football and what it meant. And now it has been shredded apart. I mean, Nick Saban has been very critical. 
Pete Carroll, the legendary coach at USC, now with the Seattle Seahawks. He criticized the Pac-12 leadership for not having vision, not understanding how all this could change and could happen. But he also criticized just college football per se. In essence, the university presidents that are ta- put their hand out, give me the money and I'll take my team to the other end of the country to play in a strange conference. It's, it's, I think it's terrible. And there's so much history that is ingrained in our hearts up and down the West Coast about this conference and where it's been and the greatness of players and coaches, etc. To see it end up this way is terribly sad. I understand it's business. I said on KUSI Saturday and Sunday morning when I was doing a double sports thing, this just doesn't feel right to me. This should not end the way it's ending. Go ahead. Did you see Chip Kelly's comments yes. about maybe not having any conferences at all, throwing everybody into one big group and then breaking them down into divisions like the NFL? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? That's too radical. I mean, he's always thinking outside the box. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's too radical. And by the way, the power brokers, they want to stay power brokers. They don't want to change right. anything at all. So uh, is your heartache about what's happened to the Pac-8, 10, and 12? You know, it's it's interesting because you know I I went to a school at the time was Division three in the 1980s at UC San Diego, and now they're finally D one, which is great. But we always looked up to the the, the Pac twelve as this you know mega conference on the West Coast, and I just remember as a kid always watching the big game Cal and Stanford or at USC and UCLA were always on television. It was dominant in the culture here, especially when the Rose Bowl was the Pac twelve and the Big Ten. But a lot of those boundaries and those those lines have broken down, the way they do the bowl games, now the conferences. So I'm just sort of chalking it up as we're now evolving into a new era. And I don't get too hung up on the tradition, although I, I recognize it and respect it, but it's not keeping me from, you know, moving along with the sport. Yeah, I mean, again, the college football playoffs is all about money now, and now it's going to be a 12-team playoff, and that thing has radically changed. When it first started, when it was two, then it went to four, now it's gone to 12, and so you're telling me it's okay to have a 360-team super conference. Yeah, March Madness works. Why not do it for Uh, football? Okay, next question. (laughs) Okay, let's uh, move on down the line here, and uh, this we'll get Manny, and he says, I did say last week that that now the Pac-4 was a dying and now a dead conference. Long live the Big Ten slash 18 and the big 12 slash 16 and the mountain west at least cal gets their bear tax out of ucla well i'll be intrigued to see what the mountain west does but i think they have to stand pat i just don't think they can reach if they were to ever to get oregon state and washington state to join the mountain west conference manny that would be a boom it would really help but you tell me if you're in corvallis or if you're in pullman Do you really think playing Boise State and San Diego State or Fresno State or the Colorado State Rams or with apologies to the Air Force Academy, is that going to is that going to fill Reeser Stadium in in, uh, Corvallis is going to fill, you know, Martin Stadium in Pullman? Is it going to fill what's going on in Berkeley or Palo Alto? I'm just I'm just not really sure. But uh, Mountain West, can they reach and get somebody to talk to them? Or should they stand pat and just see how the dust settles going forward? Well, you know, you've heard the story about how if the Mountain West did merge, they'd want to take those founding Mountain West schools. And I think of San Diego State and UNLV and maybe New Mexico. But New Mexico is a terrible football program. that has been yeah. terrible forever. Same with UNLV. So while they might be intriguing with basketball, you wonder if they fit with football. The whole thing is just a mess. And I, yeah, I feel bad for Stanford and Cal because 
They're the ones that kind of were loyal to the conference. And yeah, even Oregon State and Washington State. And now, you know, everyone's left the party and they're standing there. They got to pay the bill. And the other factor is the Mountain West, I don't think, can terminate these other schools. You may not like the Lobos or the San Jose Spartans. You can't kick them out of the conference for no rationale. And then the Mountain West is standing there and saying, you want to leave? Write this check Thirty-four million. Give it to me now. Yeah, unless they vote to dissolve, which I think is an interesting strategy. But I don't. There's no guarantee the Pac-4 is going to take them. Yeah, and so, where's everybody else go? They wind up in the Big Sky Conference, one AA football. Yeah, uh, might be. Next question. Okay, let's move on down the road here. And this is uh, from Greg, and he says, "I feel if SC does not leave the Pac-12, then no one else does." Thoughts? I blame my alma mater, SC, but they already did leave. Well, they left a year ago, and they didn't tell anybody that this was going on. And the, the big question is they took the payday. UCLA has enormous financial problems because of athletic department mismanagement. Uh, you know, they tagged along so they could, quote, get the payday. You know, the, the, I guess the burning question is, is the president or the commissioner of the Pac-12 had no knowledge any of this was going on, which meant the university presidents have no soul at USC and UCLA. They allowed this to transaction to occur with not talking to the other presidents. And they share knowledge at, at the Ivy Tower level of everything. They share all types of data, a chunk of it, obviously, about academia and grants and research and all the really important things on a college campus. And these presidents at Southern Cal and UCLA did not tell any of the other presidents, because they all sit on the same council on the Board of Governors, did not tell anybody about what they were doing. And voila, we wake up one morning on a Saturday and there's the bulletin on my cell phone at four o'clock in the morning. This is going to be announced within the hour or two hours. And that's a pretty crappy way to do business when you've had this relationship president to president at the university level forever and ever. And that's the way you conduct your academic business. Yeah, it's it was amazing. It was a shocker when that was announced. But I kind of wonder, like, remember, let's let's go back in time when let's just the, the USC president knew that this was going to happen in advance. Right. And what was the timing on this when they got Lincoln Riley to come over from Oklahoma? I wonder if part of that recruiting was it's like, hey you know, wink, wink, we're going to be going to the Big Ten here. And then I'm wondering if Lincoln Riley used that as some of his leverage to get Caleb Williams to come here, knowing full well that there was going to be a bigger opportunity. Might be. But, you know, across the street, Chip Kelly said, I was never told anything till like two hours before it was going to be announced that we were leaving the Pac-12. So Chip Kelly had no knowledge. I don't know that Link Riley would have knowledge. I I mean, Link Riley was going to recruit and he was going to win wherever he went because he's that type of guy and he's got these type of recruiting contacts. But uh, I'm I'm so disturbed. I am so disappointed for so many different people. Okay, we move on. Okay, let's uh, let's talk to John here. He says, "I turned off the Padres Dodgers. It got real ugly." So that's what first place looks like. <laughs> um, I, the the Padres look to be an emotionally spent baseball team right now. You know, and somebody out there would say, Lee, how the hell can you say that? I mean, they'd won seven of 11 games. Yeah, thank God they're playing Colorado and some of the other misfits in baseball. But but the Dodgers just, the Dodgers are a complete ball club. Their pitching staff's a little chewed up right now. But that lineup, anytime, any place in the game, I think the Dodgers have 19 come from behind wins, Mm -hmm. and which is pretty stuck on significant. And they've, they've got complete ball players. They've kept those ball players on the field. Mookie Betts has not been hurt. Freddie Freeman's not been hurt. Will Smith is one of the most underrated bats behind home plate. He's uh, had one minor injury. 
Um, Dodgers just are a really good organization, and they make you know they make it work through their farm system simultaneously. It's weird because we have thrown a few hand grenades towards Petco Park on this podcast of recent times, with all the losing and just the bad losses to sub five hundred teams. It is odd for me to stand up on the street corner by myself because I have no friends and say, you know what, these guys can still go to the playoffs. And if they make it as a wild card, you could argue with me, but you'd be wrong. I'm a talk show host, John. (laughs) If they make the playoffs in a best of three short series with that pitching staff and that batting order Mm -hmm. in a wild card series, best of three, I think I'd take the Padres in a best of three getting in. Now, if that's the Atlanta Braves we're looking at down the road there— you know, the Potters are becoming home pretty dug on quickly because Atlanta, like the Dodgers, pretty damn quick, complete baseball club. But in a short best of three series against the Cubs or whomever else gets in if the Potters get in, they got a chance, no? Yeah, well, if you had Snell, you'd have Darvish and hopefully Musgrove. Yeah, they, they would stand a great chance if they just sneak in and they'd probably scare some teams. But gee whiz, I mean, we were just talking about the Dodgers getting Lance Lynn and we're like, oh, this guy gives up meatballs. He gives up the home run. His ERA is almost seven. And then what did he do to the Padres on Sunday? He just smoked them. He gave up one bomb. They did have guys on base, but he pitched around and pitched out. He does. Historically, it's odd. He's pitched really well at Dodger Stadium in his career. Mm-hmm. And the few times he's pitched at Petco Park, he's pitched pretty well, too. So, But hey, if we can get this thing to a, a wild card weekend uh, in October... Maybe they've had a chance to do some things. But schedule's not easy going for them. I mean, granted, they're going to play downtrodden Arizona after they get done with the series, uh, Seattle. But then they get first place Baltimore. Baltimore. The Orioles have the best record in the American League. Baltimore. Can you believe that? Wow. I mean, that's you have to go way back in the day when they were a dominant team like that. And that's not Cal Ripken's roster either, by the way. No, it's not. I mean, it's unbelievable. So, All right, we move on. Next question. We move on. This is uh, from uh, Trayvon, and he says, I now live just outside of Boulder and can't wait to continue with all rivalry with Nebraska. Go Buffs. Nebraska. Did they move back to the Big 12? Did I miss something while I was... (laughs) There's been so much flurry of activity. But no, Nebraska's in the Big 10. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. See, the thing here, and I'm excited because I want to see Coach Prime and all his antics and his cowboy hat and his boots and all that. That's cool. I just don't think they're going to be able to compete. Uh, And I I think they would have gotten their brains blown out in in the Pac-12. And I think that they're going to pay a price going to the Big 12. But from a marketing standpoint, that's sexy. But that being said, Trevin, let's be realistic. This is not Bill McCartney's Big 12 when CU is really special. Rashawn Salam and Sal Onisi and all those great players. This is not the Big 12. There is no Nebraska, which was elite at that point in time. There is no Oklahoma. There is no Texas, Texas A&M. So if you're excited that you're going to play University of Houston and Cincinnati and Central Florida and Iowa <laughs> State, more power to you. Just drink a lot of beer before you go to Folsom Field. I, it's just not the same conference. I don't care they're paying 37 million TV hours. It's not the same bloody conference. Well, it is interesting. You know, we, we knew there was that moment with McCartney when the Buffaloes were good. And they had yeah, Rashad Salam and who was the the... the uh, Stewart Cordell Stewart was the quarterback Eric there. Eric Bieniemy and Eric Bieniemy, so they had some good run there. But 
But Nebraska was just so dominant, like in the 60s and 70s, weren't they? And what what happened to that program? They fell off a cliff. They fired their coach, Frank Solich, who, by the way, went to my alma mater. He's from Cleveland, went to Ohio University, and he resurrected the Bobcats and did a great job till his health got really bad just two years ago and was forced into retirement. But Solich, I think, went 9-3, and three, and the big cigars, this, this can't be the way Husker football operate. They fired him. And really? they, they have not been the same since. And they've gone through all these different coaches, and we got to have a Cornhusker be head coach. And they brought back Scott Frost, the co- former quarterback. And that fell flat on their face. So, I mean, they've gone through some really bad times, and they don't recruit nationally. They don't recruit speed from Florida. Mm-hmm. And that I think because of the changing and the evolution of what's gone on in the Lone Star State of Texas, I don't think they're hauling an awful lot of guys out of Texas now. So, And then they go to this other conference. You know, Nebraska's got a great credentials as an academic institution, but they go to this other conference, the Big Ten. They're getting their butts kicked there by, that's big boy football, Michigan, Ohio State, Wisconsin. It's, Nebraska's not what Nebraska was, and obviously the Big 12 now is not what the Big 12 used to be. But enjoy the beer at Folsom Field. On we go. <laughs> Next question. Okay, let's get in some social media comments here because we got a bunch of them too. And uh, here's one about the Chargers, and we'll go here. Uh, this is from Sean. He says, fair assessment, Lee, talking about the big contract for Justin Herbert. He goes, I believe the cap jumps a bit next year, but Eckler, Allen, Bosa, Mack will be gone for sure next year. Well, everybody can't stay on the rock. Roster, uh, because we've talked extensively, the two wide receivers are, both have cap figures of over thirty million. Bosa and Khalil Mack will have cap figures over thirty million, and now the new structure package. Although I, I don't know that Justin Herbert will count fifty-two million in any one given year against the cap, but that's his average salary. There's some bookkeeping there that might change that number. Um, this is the last year they're going to have this component of stars on the roster because somebody's going to have to leave. And it's probably going to be Keenan Allen, and it might be Kolomak. Um I think Bose is kind of overpaid. I, obviously, he's a very good pass rusher. I don't think he's a complete guy. Um, so this, you know, this 17 games, this will be the final time we'll probably see collectively uh, this roster put together. And then he got the Eckler free agency, which is part of the equation, too, because he's walking around with a scowl on his face about the fact he had to fight to get a decent payday, considering how integral a player he's been to the success of the offense. So I, I'm just such great regard with Justin Herbert and I, what Eckler, Eckler's a self-made man. And Keenan Allen came out of Cal with knee problems and Ten years later, he's still a star in the league, and we obviously know what some of these other young guys can do. So let's enjoy it. I I tell people all the time, I hope Justin Herbert goes 17-0, but I hope Dean Spanos goes 0-17, and, and I'll be going to see my psychiatrist probably on Monday about that. <laughs> do you think Austin Eckler would be like a cancer, that he would be upset and disgruntled and kind of kill the vibe in the huddle? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, he'd play hard because he's playing for his next contract somewhere else. But of course, running backs, I think, John, have been devalued a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, you know, he's a, a specially made guy for a certain type of offense. So if it's not here, it could well be somewhere else. There's somebody that runs the ball but throws the ball to their backs a lot. Now, whether he's going to get 10 or $12 million going forward, I don't know that anybody else aside from Christian McCaffrey, who's the most complete, biggest running back out there, 
is ever going to get the kind of money. I mean, CMC is getting $16 million a year in San Francisco. Wow. But you look at how he plays and what he does, he's pretty phenomenal. But obviously, running back in Tennessee, Derrick Henry is not going to get 10 going forward. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott still does not have a job, and he's only 28 or 29. Is he used up? Dalvin Cook has not yet signed, though we think he's going to the Jets, but that's going to be at a discount. He's not getting what he got with the Vikings. So the position has changed. But Eckler's a good guy. Eckler's now he's he's become a spokesman. I mean, he he tells people what he thinks, but he's still such a really great player. You don't put up the kind of numbers that he's put up at his size without being some type of spectacular individual. Where did he go to school? Mesa Mesa Western in Colorado, Division Two. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, like you say, he's a self-made guy. Yeah, they're gems. You can find these guys. These guys are everywhere, you know, back, way back in the day. And this is why the Pittsburgh Steelers got good. They they had a guy that was a former sports writer, was a scout, became a scout. His name was Bill Nunn. He's in the Hall of Fame. Bill Nunn went to Chuck Knoll and said, I'm going to fly to all these black colleges in the Deep South. Mm. The SWAC school, Southwestern Athletic Conference. And we're going to find these guys because nobody else at that point in time was recruiting them. And they went out and they drafted the Joe Greens, although he went to North Texas State, but it was a small school. And he went out and he found all these great players at the black colleges. And then suddenly everybody else started to go in there. So there's great history and legacy. Now, it's, it's a different era now because... The minute the color line changed in the Southeastern Conference where Alabama and Kentucky and Tennessee started to take African-American players, let's go back to the 60s, then everything changed. And then suddenly the Jackson States where Walter Payton played and these other places weren't getting the marquee players because the marquee players couldn't get into SEC schools. And then all of a sudden when the color barrier went down, Alabama and all of them started recruiting all the great African-Americans and the SWAC schools have really, outside of Jerry Rice, there has not been a great player in a SWAC school in decades. And Jack went to uh, Jerry Rice went to Mississippi Valley State. But Bill Nunn was the one that pioneered and told Chuck Knoll, I'm going to go down there and we're going to find players. And, you know, Chuck Knoll went 1-13 his first year and within two years was in the playoffs. And then we know the legacy and going to the Hall of Fame and everything. But up Part and parcel, some of that had to do with Bill Nunn recruiting great African-American players. Wow, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, it's now in the days of social media, you think there would no be no hidden talents because everyone is exposed. But then the Chargers found Eckler, you know, and then they're, they're going to find guys. Who was that receiver the Chargers had from northern Colorado? Vincent Jackson. Yes. Yeah, he was a pretty good player, too, back in the he day. He came from military background, played at a very small school, northern Colorado. I think at that point was Division Two. Uh, his family was from the military, so he didn't. He traveled around, didn't have a lot of exposure, but they saw monster potential in him from a physical talent standpoint. You can find guys anywhere. One of the great modern-day tight ends never played college football. Antonio Gates oh, yeah. was a power forward at Kent State, <laughs> which didn't win games. Yeah, And the Chargers scoped inside it and knew the athleticism and knew what he had done in a high school as a player out of Detroit. And voila— Probably a Hall of Fame tight end somewhere down the road. Yeah. That you was, can find them. They're guys everywhere. That's awesome. Okay, let's, a couple more here on social media. All right, let's, we've got an Aztec comment here, and this is talking about the ticket sales going down about 5,000. And Rich says, 
Just an FYI, Texas sold out its allotment of 68,000 or more season tickets and would have sold 20,000 more if they were available. Well, that's Texas. That's Longhorns football. That's big-time football. That's heritage going back to the 1930s and 1940s. I'll tell you how disappointing it is. I went to San Diego State's first practice last week. And I, you know, I know the excitement in Boulder at CU. And I know that the fans are flocking to Oregon State to see the Beavers. Jonathan Smith, has done, the ex-quarterback, has done such a nice job flipping Oregon State back. I counted seven people. Seven? Seven people at, at San Diego State's first practice on the field. Seven. Seven. That's it. Now, you know, the coach doesn't want the whole world showing up there because he's afraid somebody's going to be video something or whatever. But... There's no energy. There's no excitement. They don't know how to market their program. Seven. I counted seven people standing along the sidelines watching practice. Not the media. There there are maybe eight of us in the media from me to a beat writer to a bunch of TV cameramen just shooting generic videos. Seven people. I'll guarantee you it's not seven people at Fresno State. I'll guarantee you it's not seven people up at Boise State watching the opening day. There's something something missing here in our community and the linkage. Well, that's crazy. I mean, that's the is that the 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 field that's right there by the parking lot by the baseball team? Yeah, Yeah, the garage. That's incredible because you think that there would be students. Now, granted, it's summer, but you still think there'd be students watching, some fans. But I I just think that two year window. When they were gone. When they were gone, has just taken the air out of the room. So hopefully they can rebuild this thing because, boy, if, we, if they can win at Snapdragon, I think it can be a very successful program. It's a great stadium. They did a phenomenal job getting it built on time and at cost. You know, but you're talking to somebody. I did Aztec football for a bunch of years. I did it during the Marshall Falk era. And people in San Diego will remember that era when they, they were in the shootouts with BYU and they tied SC here, mm-hmm. 31-31. And they had the massive tie game with Brigham Young, the Ty Detmer 51-51 game. They were drawn 48 to 50,000 for home games in the Marshall Falk era. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's all gone away to the point I stood there and I was flabbergasted. I counted seven people watching the first day of practice. Now, on Saturday night, they're going to have their first summer scrimmage at Snapdragon. So they'll draw 3,000, 5,000. Mm. Not drawing that at Boulder, I'll guarantee you that, for the black and gold scrimmage. Yeah, I mean, usually, yeah, when, when Oklahoma and these other schools have their oh. scrimmage, it's like must-see, and, and people flock out there. Now, granted, if, if you live in Oklahoma or you live in Lincoln, Nebraska— you know, there, there's nothing else to do. I mean, so that becomes the thing. But, yeah, it's tough, I mean, for the Aztecs. But I remember when Marshall Falk, I went to the game where they played Miami. Mm-hmm. He, at, at, back then, I guess it was Jack Murphy before it was even Qualcomm. What a great atmosphere that was. It just didn't work out, though. Yeah, the whole place was electric. He was there for three years and did some phenomenal things and got a first-round draft pick out of it and had a, a really great career. As an NFL running back, and then San Diego State kind of just, they lost the energy and they fell off the map. And that's a long time ago. That was in the 1990s. My goodness, that's almost 30 years removed. We're still mad at Lee Corso. Yeah, I'm sure you <laughs> probably are. Hey, listen, we hope you've enjoyed Hacksaw's Headlines, our Monday bonus podcast brought to you by Dixie Line Lumber Home and Center Stores. Fix it, build it, enjoy it. 
at Dixie Line. John, we'll be back on Thursday. Have yourself a great sports day, and we'll see what the pennant race looks like, and we'll have more news and notes Thursday with the opening of the NFL preseason schedule in the first weekend ahead of us. There's always something going on, Lee. It's going to be good. And we'll talk about it. Thanks for being with us, too, on Hacksaw's Headlines. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.